How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You are listening to The Coming Out Tapes, an audio archive of LGBT stories. I'm your host, Karis Bradley, and throughout this season, I'll be talking to lots of different people from the community about lots of different things connected to coming out. Okay, so this is where I would do the smooth introduction. Uh, Right. Uh, so, uh, for this episode, I am interviewing my new friend, Zine. Um, so, do you want to uh, introduce yourself? Zine, as in wine. Mm-hmm. Zine. So, it starts with an X and rhymes with wine. Uh, so, I'm Zine Yao. My government name is Christine. Um, and I have moved to the UK uh, less than a year ago to start as a lecturer at UCL in English literature. I am from Canada, specifically from Toronto, so a Chinese diasporic settler in Haudenosaunee territory. Um, I did my undergrad at University of Toronto, my first master's at Dalhousie in Halifax, my PhD at Cornell in upstate New York, and then I just finished my, doing my, U, uh, my postdoc at UBC in Vancouver, and then made my way to the heart of empire here and the home of eugenics, which is interesting since I work on race science. If you want to hear more about the history of eugenics at UCL, the wonderful Sapata Das and I made a walking tour about it. You can listen on the UCL website, and there's a link in the description of this episode. Uh, my area is particularly, well, I was hired as a lecturer in American literature in 1900. So yes, colonial 19th century, I work on history of science, queer theory, particularly um, queer of color critique, um, f- feminism, feminism of color, um, yeah, sorry, I'm getting a little bit. I spent too much too much time today with like looking just at periodicals and not talking. <laughs> um, uh, and I work on affect theory, and I'm particularly theorizing an antisocial turn in affect theory through queer queer color critique, which I know is very jargony. Psst. Affect theory is a theory that tries to categorize the different possible ways that we can be affected by something uh, into discrete categories and then understand how those different types of affects were caused and their implications. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't actually know what any of those words mean in that sentence, <laughs> but later we are going to talk about your 
research and some of the cool things mm. about kind of coming out stories in, in literature. Uh, but before that, more about you. Um, so how do you identify? That's a good question. I feel like I, in the first couple of weeks of being here in the UK, I decided I needed to know what sort of identity categories people use. So I actually saw that at SOAS there was a event called like Race in Britain. I was like, okay, this is perfect. This is where I'll be able to like learn things. And of course they went around the room and asked for that sort of identification. And so that was what the moment where I decided like that publicly I'd prefer to identify as them as opposed to woman, but I haven't uh, probed for myself much beyond that because I don't feel as invested in my gender identity um, as a lot of my friends are. Yeah. Cool. Um, so what does the word femme mean to you? So the way that I think of femme, and I've recently been doing some work on, on femme, so that's sort of at the forefront in my mind, is like thinking of it as uh, reclamations of fe uh, femininity for both cis and trans um, people. And that doesn't just mean like the high fashion sense, although that's an important part for me, but also about reclaiming the behavioral aspects or the effective care and seeing that as valid and particularly being critical of the way that femme invisibility operates to delegitimize people across um, in a whole different range of circumstances. So for instance, we could think about how feminists exacerbates uh, questions about the apolitical status of, of the so-called lipstick lesbian, uh, the way that femme bisexuals are particularly seen as being treacherous or indecisive, or the way that like even femme trans women, their feminist tends to be used against them, um, even though it's also the, the barrier of, or rather the, the means by which they're supposed to validate themselves, but at the same time, it, it still enfolds itself back within the kind of misogyny that sees femininity as being false and artificial. Okay, so uh, what's the difference between saying that you are femme and saying that you are a woman? So I think that it's because this the type of distancing from the way that there's a type of biological essentialism. Psst. Biological essentialism is the idea that there are certain traits, like intelligence, which are innate to us, as opposed to having been developed by our upbringing. Centred in the term of woman. And that particularly, I think that femme brings out the importance of gender expression and also I think perhaps the deliberateness of one's identification as such um, yeah and I think that speak of being femme in this moment does important political work because as trans activist Julia Serrano says like there's a lot of solidarity work that we could done between cis and trans femmes because of the way that they're denigrated by misogyny do you think that um, like to sort of analogize you can say that kind of like femme is to woman as like queer is to gay or bisexual. So it's like mm. a political kind of choice, which is wrapped up more in your identity than just, you know, what your body is, what you feel inside, who you're attracted to. Definitely. And so like the way that uh, theorists Lisa Dugan and Kathleen McHugh say it is like the femme occupies normality abnormally. And like that sort of particularly is what I think is very destabilizing about femme is precisely that you're operating within the terms of what seems to be the normative um, rather than perhaps being clearly visible in the way that the type of abjection, the way that abjection works and then one can reclaim the abject and be very visible. But what does it mean to try and 
do that work while still seeming to be under, I guess, the the banner of a type of normality, as it were, but doing different sort of work with it. Okay. I think that makes sense. So it's kind of like uh, the way that you like perform your feminist is kind of like a conscious decision mm-hmm. as opposed to, for example, something that you feel that you need to do in order to like fulfill a standard set out by someone else. Mm-hmm. And particularly like going back to the 19th century, there's a way that I feel like you could see an earlier history of feminine visibility play out, which is uh, with the rise of dress reform as a movement. So in popular culture, I think you'd usually think of like women were wearing corsets and then they started wearing bloomers. And then there's this uh, correlation between uh, freedom of movement from restrictive clothing and social mobility. But then what sort of um, happens there is this type of denigration of what can be considered traditionally feminine as being only subordinate to like male desire in some in many senses. But I think that feminist shows that there's a type of excess to the fem- feminine uh, performance and that particularly because femininity is uh, denigrated that uh, there's something that's still worth cl- uh, reclaiming and that to, to, de- to buy into the denigration of femininity is to basically just uh, scapegoat femininity for its own abjection as it were, as opposed to well, the usual sort of move of like, okay, they're they're feminine, therefore they're not as political, they're not feminist enough. And that ends up, again, seceding the ground of femininity and falling into the same trap of misogyny that has been denigrating in the first place. Are you um, familiar with the term uh, dyke camp? Is this a thing that you've heard before? I mean, as in like you go... No, 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 as in, as in, uh, in the same way that like we associate uh, campness with gay men, dyke camp is like... Uh, maybe a mirror for for lesbians. Mm. Um, so I read this amazing article, and it was about how um, the actress who was in the Ghostbusters remake—I forget her name. Oh my, yeah. Oh my gosh, she's so hot. Um, what? How can I forget her name? I can and see then she was in face. the Spy Who Dumped Me, and I'll have to. Oh, Catherine. Not Katie, Catherine. I feel like that definitely begins with some kind of car sound. Yes. Um, but anyway, her was Kate McKinnon. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, I've also I've I've linked to an article about Dyke Camp in the description of this episode. Can't believe we forgot who Kate McKinnon was. You know, so she um so this article was about how um if campness in some senses is unapologetically performing your homosexuality. Um, as a form of self-expression for gay men or bisexual men, then dyke camp is maybe an equivalent for uh, women um, who are lesbian or bisexual um, or other forms of of queer where um, you take, like, there are specific kind of, like, dresses, the way that you dress and your mannerisms and things like that, but they come from an internal confidence in... uh, a way of commanding yourself which is linked to your sexuality and the rejection of like heteronormative kind of values mm-hmm. so dyke camp doesn't have to be butch it doesn't have to be uh, uh fulfilling a particular stereotype it's not necessarily about like what you wear and how you do it but it's ha- the confidence that you carry yourself with um and i kind of feel like some of the things that you're saying about femme or like taking hold of that identity is kind of similar where it's not necessarily about 
because there are obviously lots of ways to be feminine um but it's i don't know maybe the confidence that comes from the fact that that's your choice Mm -hmm. which gives you kind of like a identity didn't really make very much sense but it made sense in my head i I was following you and i think that that is actually really important especially because camp has been seen as the domain of like usually sort of a cis male queerness um and there's like this famous debate within queer theory about uh like saying that at a previous time that queer theory tended to overly privilege this type of very ironic camp cis white male uh queer uh queerness that was again a very particular orientation to objects and then seeing it as being opposed to particularly like i guess dyke sensibilities and queer of color sensibilities generally but i do think that that in many ways is sort of a false binary even though i think it does reflect perhaps the problem with a, a previous era of criticism uh okay so that's a lot on femme um should we move to uh sexuality Mm -hmm. um so how do you identify in that respect i guess i would say i think queer is easiest i guess i'd also i'd be fine with using using bisexual i know that there's a lot of debates right now between bisexual versus pansexual and a lot of i guess a lot of critique on both sides about what those terms do and but i don't feel particularly wedded to bisexual or pansexual as a term to be honest um do you think that uh your choice of language in this sphere is linked to your femme identity Mm, no um and i think that perhaps that's particularly important because the conflation between gender identity and sexual orientation is really something that happens in the late 19th century with sexology and because i'm some of my work is interested in like critiquing the way that there's a type of collapse between between these things um like there's i think there's yeah there's a lot of reason to push against that because once those things are tend to be collapsing each other that tends to make some identities more visible than others are seen as more legitimate than others um i meant more like so you have a array of different words that you can choose to describe your sexuality mm. um and do you think that the fact that you have thought a lot about your gender identity and you're using the word femme, do you think that the approach that you've taken to choosing specific words in that area is maybe linked to either an apathy or like specific decision in the, in the other area? Mm. So do you think that like queer maybe feels more comfortable because uh, you also... Um, represent like this other kind of political or politicized kind of gender identity i think that's definitely part of it also i think there's something about the capacious of queer what is sorry what does capacious mean oh like just that there's a lot of room for it Ah, okay yeah there's a lot of yeah there's a, i feel like that that allows just much more of an opening up for different types of attachments and desires and erotics whereas for me like saying bisexual even pansexual even though it's sort of an opening to me does not express sort of the weirdness of when i do feel attraction to people yeah yeah and i guess because queer for a lot of people is quite anti-heteronormative and femme from your description is extremely anti-heteronormative um in terms of like rejecting the entire premise on which feminism uh, femininity is kind of like viewed um so they do seem to be kind of connected in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so when did you uh, first come out to yourself, both in, in both hmm. circles, respect? 
It's hard to say when, because I feel like ever since I was a child, I was like, I sort of felt like these categories don't really work for me. But whether or not I was able to articulate it was another matter, or if I was supposed to, was also another matter as well. And then it just seemed, I think, easier sometimes to just go with the path of least resistance. That if I, if let people assume what they want. When you say like supposed to, can you expand on what do you mean by that? I guess like even when you're a child, you see all these narratives about that that fetishize heterosexual coupledom as this endpoint, and I knew that that was something I just felt very uncomfortable with. And I think I knew that I was attracted to other girls at a much earlier age than I was boys, but then I could see that the way that adults are and so forth would respond to would respond to that type of behavior as well um yeah i think it's for me it's quite co- complicated because there's no distinct moment it was more like this is my relationship to myself and to other people and then seeing the way that the rest of the world responded to articulations of those same identities and behaviors and then also learning the different terms that are associated with them and then also the different stigmas as well and that there's some sort of meeting for me between these things that I guess in some ways can't, can't be sep- uh, separated but also it doesn't mean that there's anything that's particularly clear or linear about it. Um, do you remember the first time that you like verbalized your sexuality either to yourself mm. or to another person? I guess I don't really remember. I don't think it was very important for me to tell people in a big way. And then is like, so having a femme identity, is that something that you like would consider you come out in the same kind of way? Like, is that something that you have to tell people? No, I I actually feel like there's been a turn perhaps in the last few years where people are being very conscious of saying like women and femmes and things like that. And a lot of people identifying as femmes and particularly the group of women and femmes of color that I was a part of in Vancouver, like it was a very deliberate choice of the word that was very political, both femme and of, of color being very important components. Um, yeah, sorry, I forgot what. So it, like, is it a thing that you sort of have to tell people? Hmm. Or, so I guess it doesn't kind of come up in, this, in the conversation in the, in the same way. Um, but have you ever had like a situation where you've had to make that distinction in terms of your gender identity? No. Yeah. I guess I just don't feel the need to waste energy on people that I know won't get it. Yeah. That's reasonable. Um, okay. So the, uh, next question was, um, like, where are you out, uh, in your life? Um, I guess, well, like my family knows, and it's like a very low-key thing to be honest it's not dramatic especially in the think the way that the narrative of the coming out to the family is supposed to be and I think particularly in terms of a tradition of like Asian North American narratives usually that also show it as like an intergenerational conflict it wasn't like that at all it was like something that just sort of came out casually with both my my mom and my dad or my dad was like oh I noticed I think my dad said it's like I noticed that you said you're dating people. So that means that you're dating people who are not just men. And I was like, oh, yes. And he's like, oh, that's good. And like, it was just like such a non-issue. 
And I guess that that is the way that I've operated my identities, which is to be who I am and act as I, as I am and to sort of see that the way that that sort of weirds people out just a bit or that maybe perhaps makes them question the category that they've put me in. And then, yeah, just to go with that, because I think that doing that sort of subtle work of destabilization and perhaps trying to disrupt on a, an epistemological level how you presume someone's identity is, um, is for me, I think, part of the, as a component of the work that other people are doing where they're being far more overt. And I think that, that there's a lot of space for a, like a lot of these different types of representative and self-representative strategies. And so I've taken the one that also probably takes less energy. <laughs> um. Uh, I like this. We have some like teenagers and young people who listen to the episode, uh, and so I feel like this is this is good. You can determine your you know identity and your coming out story by the path of least energy. Not everything has yeah, to be big because you don't owe it to people. I think that's part of the problem, as especially as the mainstreaming of queer identity, LGBTQ plus identity is becoming more mainstream. It's almost like there's a corresponding thing with both the representation and the narrative itself it's has to fetishize a moment of absolute revealing of the true self and the truth the revealing of the true self to to the other or to the dominant to the dominant uh powers that be as it were and that is exhausting and also it ends up creating so many different expectations of respectability and legit and like the terms of one's legibility and of course, it is important for some people to do that, but that you don't have to do that, I guess, yeah. is my thing. I also think that that kind of, like, the emphasis on that particular story, like, gives so much... Uh, it makes it, so like, just as much, if not more, about the person that you're coming out to as well as you, um, yeah, which is why I think that that story has kind of, like, risen to the top in LG, uh, LGBT plus stories uh, written by people from outside the community. Mm-hmm because when they're trying to center themselves in someone else's narrative, like everything comes to this focal point where you're having a conversation between the two yeah. groups. Yeah, like there's a phrase that I really like, the politics of recognition, uh, which has been taken a lot in indigenous studies right now, but like that the very way that one is recognized ends up shaping the parameters, like the, the political parameters of representation, but also what is possible at the same time. Uh, and I think that that's something to sort of bear in mind about that type of legibility. And also the problem is, as dramatic as those big reveals are, you're never done. You're going to have to keep on doing it over and over again. And that is exhausting. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of your your family. Would you say, so are you out at work? Um, is your identity and your um, relationship with the community, given that you do so much research like in this area, is that something that is at the forefront of your work as well? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I only just moved here and I put a rainbow flag on my door. So I feel like that should be overt enough. And I, But I don't feel the need to talk about my romantic life with any of my colleagues. That being said, of course, like queer theory and queer color theory has been really important to my work in general. Um, and I feel like at that point, because everyone knows well, within the field is aware of the sort of epistemological problems that come with thinking about identity and also about narratives of coming out that you just sort of let people assume what they want and 
that sort of work is also important. Could you, um, just for listeners in case, could you do a quick breakdown of etymological the okay. rest of the sentence? Yeah, sorry. Um, I, I realize that I've taken a very ad hoc approach to asking uh, you to expand on things. I know. I've just, again, I'm sorry. I've spent all day like reading criticism, so I, I have to adjust how I'm talking. So epistemology is one of what's considered the big three schools of philosophy. Um, there's ethics. Everyone knows what ethics is. Metaphysics, which is the study of being, which has I went, be sort of splintered into natural science, and now we could consider science, um, but it was metaphysics still a thing. And then the last one being epistemology, which is how we know things. And so an example of epistemology would be like the way that in our society right now, we fetishize empiricism, so that the sense of its knowledge is only what is tangible that can be tracked according to certain quantitative measures, so it's scientific empiricism, which is also as a friend of mine calls it, well, white empiricism, for instance. But the way that I'm using epistemology is the way that um, this awareness is happening in schools of critical thought. Uh, the ways that we know has to do with like the whole paradigm of the world that we live in, the material circumstances, the ideologies that make things some things visible, some things valid, and other things get, become obscured or erased or otherwise deemed Ill illegitimate, that certain forms of knowledge are considered valu um, valuable or legitimate, say, because I have a degree versus if I didn't, um, for instance. Um, and so how does that relate back to queer theory and um, queer of color theory? Yeah, so this really goes back to one of the iconic texts of queer theory, I think published in 1982, I could be wrong. Eve Sedgwick's Epistemology of the Closet and Typically, people talk about Eve Sedgwick and Judith Butler as the figures of the 90s that were particularly influential. And there's also, well, there's also other figures before that. But anyway, so the epistemology of the closet, Eve Sedgwick sort of is trying to delineate the way that in what she calls at the time, anti-homophobic inquiry is different from feminist theory. And she makes this interesting proposition that it is different, but we're not going to know in advance the ways that it's different. Because, of course, it's also constitutive of building upon and dialogue with feminist theory at the same time. And so with epistemology of the closet, and I was just reading something the other day that was trying to break down the ways that that works, it becomes a sort of questioning of, again, a type of clear narrative of being in versus out to then sort of question an entire paradigm of our society that creates the, uh, the closet, that sort of creates these expectations about knowing and not knowing and that the closet is like the perfect figure actually for epistemology because it's about what can you know inside the closet versus out who is the object of knowledge versus um, the subject of knowledge in that case and it, there's all these other suppositions that go in that construct the sort of regimes of visibility that allow some things to be visible or some things to be valid and others not okay so in terms of the work that you do is that the knowing things about the person who's writing the text either lends or removes credibility from the thing that they're saying? Mm, not quite. Well, because I'd say that even saying that you know things about the person who wrote it is in itself something that we want to trouble. Because as someone who works on texts before the 20th century, like terms like like gay and straights were only becoming we're only forming around the turn of the century so there's also this a lot of interesting work that's been done on queer anachronism Psst. 
An anachronism is something that feels more appropriate to a different time or the act of attributing something to a time period that's not it's not actually from. So queer anachronism is about the appropriateness of applying LGBTQ plus language retroactively to times when sexuality and gender were articulated differently. We've got a whole episode on this coming up. And whether or not you could like say that these people are like, as this person considered trans, like would that term even mean anything to them? What sort of work is being done by trying to look back to find a type of origin from us from the contemporary moment, but also what does that elide? Um, yeah, and I think that what's interesting to me is more that on the one hand, not trying to just identify people, but also to explore that there's such a proliferation of expressions and identities that existed in all these other times across different cultures. Um, yeah, that is sort of the problem with the LGBTQ plus acronym or quilt bag, as I saw it at one point. It's like that the need to both, I think, recognize all these different forms of of identities in a way that somehow does not make them derivative of each other, which I think is a really difficult project. And I'd also like to say for our listeners, just to sort of destabilize the way that you see the acronym LGBT or LGBTQ, or even when you add double, double A's, like the norm, I think, in Vancouver and, or at least in Canada and North America, is often to LGBTQ2S is the acronym that people use. Okay, so what does that stand for? Uh, so the 2S stands for two-spirited. Uh, okay. Yeah, and so that was the term that was chosen by um, indigenous queer activists in, I think, 1994 in Manitoba uh, as a sort of the blanket term to express all these indigenous uh, sexual sexualities and gender identities that had been suppressed by settler colonialism. And so that has been was really important to that sort of work in the spaces that I was in because of recognizing our like the violence of settler colonialism is, I think, an increasingly recognized project, although the extent to which, of course, it translates to actual justice or decolonization is always a question. And then it's so funny for me to go from that context to here where it's not a thing at all. Yeah, I so I can understand that I think that's so I've done some work in schools and um one school that I was uh visiting to like talk about homophobic bullying and transphobic bullying um one of the kids was really into this two-spirited identity uh and we had to have quite a careful conversation about how like this child who was you know gender queer and Mm -hmm. really struggling to articulate themselves to themselves and also to the people around them had found a connection with this language but then also this was a, a white child who was born and raised in the UK mm-hmm. and so there is um, like a conversation that needs to be had about what uh, how using that language to describe themselves like it's not their words and yeah. it's not their culture um, which was yeah that was difficult so I'm not in any way suggesting that we don't have the two-spirited in acronym out of like respect and recognition of of the fact that it's a like I imagine the reason is that many people just don't know about it um but like how that language is integrated into uh ours in a way that does not kind of like open the door for Mm-hmm. cultural appropriation is, yeah. is quite difficult the problem is it requires a lot of education at the same time and it's easier for an acronym to circulate than it is to have all the context that goes with it I think yeah. and I'd say that, that uh, 
I'm not surprised that that happened because I remember there was another higher profile thing of a, like uh, of a white settler um, artist. I can't remember who it was. It's um, is it um, oh, bollocks. He's the one who does the. Is his name like like Joseph or Joe or something like that? I just remember he's uh, he's a singer and he wears the hat. I don't even know what that is, but nonetheless, yes, that he was identifying a two spirit thing on Twitter yeah. that people told them off. Jason, uh, something Mraz, yeah, Jason oh, Mraz. Oh, okay, oh, we got it. Oh, yes, wow, that was. Where's the hat? Um, yeah, and so that was that's probably a good high profile example of that. But actually, there's quite a long tradition, sadly, of like white settler queer people appropriating indigeneity because like a lot of the work on queer kinship, for instance, appropriates from and doesn't acknowledge like indigenous kinships, for instance. Um, okay, that is a really good chat, but I fear that the conversation that was supposed to be about you has maybe sorry. gotten away from me a little bit. So we'll conclude oh, this. No, 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 it's not, it's not your fault. Uh, everything has been really interesting. Um, uh, so we'll conclude this portion of the interview with the final question that I ask everyone, even though I kind of feel like you've maybe already answered it, um, which is what does coming out mean to you? Mm. To me, it means a cultural narrative, which is important for some people and some organizations that does a type of personal and social and political work, but it's not something you have to buy into. Cool. Um as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So the other reason uh, why I was super keen to talk to you was because you have done a lot of work in terms of um, uh, like looking at coming out stories um, and kind of 
related kind of stories within literature. So when we first met, you were telling me about uh, some work you were doing with a Japanese-Canadian comic book artist or like oh, yeah. studying uh, that. Would you be able to give a brief brief overview of, of what that kind of work looked like? Yeah. And so after just saying that I was working on American Literature 1900, so this is a completely different <laughs> uh, part of my interest because I used to want to be a comic studies person, but no one hires in that. So that's why I do colonial 19th century America and Which also for other important very lucrative places. area. Yeah, that's where the money is. No, it really <laughs> isn't. Um, but yeah, I'd been, I really love this one graphic novel. I highly recommend everyone check out by Jillian and Mariko Tamaki called Skim. And it's about this uh, mixed, mixed race Japanese Canadian girl in the 90s who's goth, who's in Catholic school who ends up um, exploring um, her, her queerness. And I obviously identify because like, also she's based in Toronto. Uh, there's, I'm not Japanese. I wanted to be a goth. Like there's all, all these other, other factors, but it's absolutely uh, beautifully put together because at no point is anything said in dialogue. It's all reliance on the images to do the sort of subtle work of the sort of picking apart the nuances of what her experience is without ever flattening it out with a particular word as it, um, or trying to make it rise to the level of a coherent legibility. Like at no point does she say, I am out, I am a lesbian or I am bisexual or anything like that. Instead, it's all her sort of messy navigations as a teenager trying to figure out things for herself by writing in her diary, by doing Wicca, by um, reading tarot cards and that sort of self-exploration that happens uh, with Id- identity in ways that I think are really beautiful and organic. Uh, and my, my particular interest was looking at the way that she was using tarot as a way of navigating these questions for herself. And I think that uh, maybe for a lot of your listeners, you'll sort of notice like there's been a, such a growth in terms of what my mom called the occult or new age or Wicca, where everyone's talking about, you know, Mercury's in retrograde, uh, what your sign is, or but also about tarot cards. And the tarot cards have particularly been interesting to me because there's such a great movement to sort of decolonize the tarot, which is a, like a very Western phenomenon that came from like uh, based from Italy and France to then recreate the tarot archetypes uh, with non-Western cosmologies and other systems. So like there's an Asian American tarot deck, which is uh, was previously sold out, but they're just starting a Kickstarter campaign to do a new edition of it, which is really awesome. Uh, there's one that's called Dusk to Onyx, which is for the African diaspora. And there's a lot of like really cool, like uh, queer cutie pock decks basically of tarot. And I think that in this graphic novel, not only is it trying to draw us into a type of more subtle reading practice in terms of how we see or try to identify the main character, but also we we see that she's doing some sort of similar work of reading herself with the tarot cards and that there's a type of process of self-making and self-knowledge and self-care that is happening through her use of tarot. Um, that's very cool. Uh, do you have much experience with other kind of like coming and uh, out kind of stories or um, literature? Uh, so part of my work, for instance, is on uh, women doctor novels in the late 19th century. So I guess, Okay, amazing. Um, and so part of part of that sort of comes to the, the problem I was saying about the subtleties and the epistemological shifts around languages and sexuality, because a lot of those women, so historically, um, would be considered 
lesbians now because they were women who had re lifelong relationships with other women who are often doctors and they did amazing things they founded hospitals they founded schools they were deans it's just like they were so amazingly accomplished but of course would they necessarily identify in that way like there's so many other terms circulating at the time like uranian invert for instance sapphic? Is uh, that yeah. kind of sapphic yeah. is another one uh and there's always a type of queerness then that was associated with women doctors in general uh, that I think was an, uh, that sort of particularly focused on them at this time where the category of woman was really shifting. So in the late 19th century, we have uh, what we might say is like a first wave of feminism that's called like the new woman. You might come across that term. Uh, but you sort of like the sort of main push for, for suffrage, for instance. And so one could say that there's a type of redefining of the category woman happening there. And aspersions that were cast against them in popular society was a type of queering of new woman in general. And then it's like women doctors in particular were even more que queered in a sort of denigrated way because of their associations with science. So it's not just that they were women doing non-woman things. They're also in this extremely masculinized domain at the same time. And yet this type of denigration is happening on the one side. And yet at the same time, we could also say anachronistically that these women are queer. Uh, and I think what's really interesting is seeing the way that these narratives negotiate problems that are very are still very current today which is like the relationship between women and science how valid is your pursuit of science considered how do you balance marriage and career is it one or the other and also like what how are they going to define what it means to be a woman and what that desire looks like and it's interesting to me that all the women doctor novels are structured around the question of whether or not they'll stay in the profession or will they be married to a man and so there seems to be a very um, sharp binary between the queerness of science and giving it up for heteronormativity and and so in that sense we could say that there isn't a clear moment of coming out in any of these moments but you could see that there's negotiations around different forms of visibility and different types of identity that do register as a type of queerness at the time um, I think it's really interesting that you found this kind of like collection of, of books as the LGBT charity that I volunteer for has a small library and there's like two whole shelves of lesbian detective novels. Oh yeah, the pulp lesbian stuff is really big in the early 20th century. Um, so is it like a, a big thing where um, like there are kind of uh, popular uh, tropes which are kind of centred around... Uh, lesbian or women who love women or some kind of language that describes that and uh, kind of like a um, like a profession which can be also be used as a stand-in for that yeah. rejection of heteronormativity with their sexuality so you get like the mirroring is that like a popular definitely thing? so I think that that's like the woman doctor thing is sort of a, a stand-in for that, like one might say is a, is a type of coding, as it were. Although I'm sort of hesitant to, to use that word because it sort of implies that those are two separate things when often these things are very much constituted within each other. And I think it's interesting you bring up lesbian detective novels because the figure of the detective, I think, is very particularly useful when thinking about coming out in epistemology because it's all about like w looking for signs, trying to find origins, trying to find a clear answer and perhaps often the ambiguity that there aren't really the type of answers, the type of clarity, the type of coming out or coming to conclusions that one might want. Um, so who was writing the women uh, doctor novels? 
Um, so in particular, people talk a lot about Sarah Orne Jewett, who was married to men, but then for the rest of her life, she was in, she lived with a woman and she was in what was called at that time. So a Boston marriage. A Boston marriage uh, is a term that's typically used around the turn of the 20th century in the US, and it basically refers to two women living together without a man. Oh, I love the Boston marriages. Yes, <laughs> and also all the no- most of the novels I'm talking about are also happening in Boston, which okay. is also- so this it's sort of interesting because it's like these women could end up in that type of Boston marriage, or if they get married to a man, they could just end up like in a very literal Boston marriage, as it were. And so she was in a Boston marriage herself, uh, and it seems like there's evidence that because she could read German, she would have had access to the work of sexologists at the time. Uh, God, how can I forget their names? But uh, that were doing the work of like coining inversion and other sort of terminology that she basically would have had access to a type of vocabulary at the time and seemed to be engaging the type of practices we would see as being queer to some extent. And another of the authors I am really interested in is Elizabeth Stuart Phelps who is probably a name you've also never heard of before, but she wrote the second best-selling novel of the 19th century in America after Uncle Tom's Cabin, The Gates Ajar. And that partially, that has to do with basically misogyny that at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a a deliberate constructing of the American literature canon, which erased all this work by women that was so popular and so influential at the time. Um, And she also was in a very unhappy relationship with a man. But I think that from reading the biographies, even though no one says it, there's also ways that you can see that there's a type of non-normative identity that's going on with her because she had a workspace with a woman doctor that, and once she, when her friend moved away, she was absolutely devastated. And I think that there's all these, and a lot of her novels have to do with like critiques of patriarchy at the time. The Gates Ajar was actually about mourning after the Civil War and about women finding their own type of Christian spirituality away from organized patriarchal Christianity at the time. Uh, but she also has a lot of great stories about all these like queer, like, well, well, all these single women choosing not to get married and then staying with each other. And the one that's called The Silent Partner. Uh, and so that's, and, and then there's a lot of them that are really delightful, I think. Or there's other ones that are very like, uh, pointed critiques of heteronormative marriage, like the story of Avis, where this woman feels obligated to get married, but it sort of destroys her happiness as an artist. Um, So all of these examples are kind of like explicit in their rejection of kind of heteronormative relationships. Um, So the other thing I wanted to talk about was uh, when those kind of... um, like uh, queer or non-heteronormative relationships are not present... Um, and the phenomenon of uh, like um, fan fiction and things that people are creating in order to insert themselves into stories where they're not kind of visible. So one of our listeners wrote in to say that um, they kind of first realised a part of their sexuality um, through what reading fan fiction mm. um, and not through reading kind of like mainstream literature. Um, so I was wondering if you had studied at all or, or like are familiar with the literature around like this kind of phenomenon in, in fan fiction. Uh, so I have friends who work on this uh, with more seriousness than I do, but I do think that there's a lot of work being done about, yeah, the sort of queerness of fan fiction, uh, but then also sort of like the normativeness of uh, like straight teenage girls who are exploring sexuality through very violent yaoi, for instance, right? 
and the sort of reconstitution of a type of heterosexual heteronormativity from ostensible queerness. Uh, but I think that fan fiction points to, I think, a type of queer strategy of reading in general that, again, comes to the question, the whole question of epistemology, of like how do you make meaning in the world and what sort of knowledge is made visible? And fan fiction is all about sort of taking existing authoritative discourses and, and reading them differently. And so sort of a different epistemological orientation towards the original object, as it were. Uh, and so we could say it's like an entire queer post or queer methodology uh, that, that is happening. thing that you said about uh so there are like some examples of of where this is used as like a tool as opposed to um like to explore yourself is, is maybe something else was a lot of the fan fiction that i read when i was a teenager like the main characters would be bisexual because they were men and the girls that were writing that fan fiction wanted those men to be able to have like sex with each other and then also mm. themselves um, and so the bisexuality in the fan fiction, like you have literal representation on the page, but it is still like a, like it's being used by a heterosexual person in order to create the kind of sexual environment that they are interested in. Mm-hmm. And I also, I, I saw a tweet like last week that I thought would be good to bring up here, uh, which is one by one of the f- favorite queer people that I follow on Twitter, Amia Koopa and Anthony Oliveira. But he had said, his tweet was something like about how kids these days get to have like characters that are actually um, out and openly LGBTQ. But he's like, but I'll always be like the old homosexual wizard who in the 90s would point his, his staff at anything remotely erotic between two men and yell queer yes. or gay. Sorry. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was really funny because I think that really complicates the p- sort of push for representation that we're talking about because it does point to the way that we're demanding a very coherent and proper type of representation that perhaps allows for very little leeway for the very little nuance uh, in terms of it, of its expression. And I sort of think about the way that people talk about queer baiting nowadays, for instance, that I do think that there's something very valid about like about the way that um, a heteronormative uh, TV show might dangle the possibility of queerness uh, as intrigue but not commit to it is one thing but then also i think that the problem is like it also doesn't by by following that critique there's also not very much room for for other forms of subtlety of of subtlety in terms of like gender expression and sexual orientation that maybe does not cannot always map on into the way that you want to have a this is a very obvious and positive representation of the person that we want um. I yeah I so um, conversations that I've had in the past about when I have been frustrated that it very much felt like there was going to be a same-sex relationship um, or something similar uh, in a TV show or a play or whatever and then it turns out that actually they're just friends um, a criticism of, of my frustration from some people uh, has often been like, but this does like that friendship uh, can be interpreted as, as queer baiting, or it can be interpreted as like a new and very positive form of, of friendship, which is not the same as the like Scrubs bromance, mm-hmm. uh, where everything is very kind of like exaggerated, um, 
uh, it's more subtle, like it doesn't adhere to, like particularly for boys, it's like uh, completely devoid of toxic masculinity in it. There's not actually very many uh, positive male friendships shown. And so it seems to be in tension with wanting those two characters to end up together and then also having these like strong friendships that show people like how to have like emotional bonds that aren't dependent on sex. Yeah, and I think that we can't think of those things as being separate, but part of the same ecosystem of a heteronormative environment. And what type of work is it be doing in one area that might be that it might uh, be undoing in another? Um, I wanted to, I guess, in, in terms of queer baiting, one might think of my OTP uh, from Legend of Korra. Did you ever watch Legend of Korra? I did watch Legend of Korra. I'm a massive Avatar fan. So I I, from the first season, I totally called um, Korasami. I'd no say. way. Yes, I was like I saw a spoiler for it, um, and then was still like a bit surprised when it happened. Yeah, and I guess like, and so I think that's an interesting example because up until the end, like a lot of people were reading the queerness, but then other people were like, this is just queer baiting, and then it turned out to be the thing. Mm. Um, And I think that that might be an interesting case study in and of itself because the type of ambiguity going on could very easily, say, map onto the way that those two two queer queer woman characters or bisexual, or we don't know how they identify, that they met because of a guy um, and then they were trying to perhaps navigate for themselves what their desire for each other looked like in relationship to friendship that then became a romantic friendship and that these things are so imbricated in each other that you can't quite separate them but also there's a type of messiness in terms of that process of coming to a type of self-realization or realization about each other that can't just is never direct from the beginning and perhaps in many ways mimics much better in a holistic and organic way our own experiences uh, of coming to our identity. Um, this is also like very similar to the comic book you were talking about at the beginning because they don't use any kind of language mm-hmm. um, and there's no kind of like formal coming out to other characters or from what I remember. Um, but what you see is um, sort of like glimpses at their internal dialogue and then that kind of final scene. Mm-hmm. Um which is more positive than some of the, uh, like as a representation of some of the other more explicit forms of LGBT representation that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. That would be such a charming way to end things, <laughs> I think. Um, uh, if that's okay with you, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, I can't quite think. I'm sure there's a lot I could talk about, but I also feel like that's a good place to end because I also want to eat dinner. Yes. Uh, Sorry, I've taken up so much Uh. of your time. Um, Okay, so then the final thing is, uh, so obviously you have your own podcast. Uh, Would you like to do a little plug? Um, Well, thank you very much. So I'm one of the co-hosts of PhD This, which is a a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. We've been going since 2015, and my co-host is Dr. Liz Wayne, who, when I met her, was doing her PhD in biomedical engineering at Cornell, and now she's finishing up her postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill and the School of Pharmacy. She works on um, a cancer immunotherapy. She was a 2017 TED Fellow. You could look up her TED Talk. Um, but the work that we're sort of doing with that podcast is really trying to make space for underrepresented minorities, particularly women, women and femmes, um, in in academia. And so it's both of us talking talking about issues ranging from like this sort of weird political secret social life of academic conferences to strategies 
near the end of your PhD to how to apply to grad school to interviewing like a lot of really awesome people. Um, for instance, I interviewed my friend Meredith Toulousen, who was the first openly trans uh, editor at LGBT BuzzFeed and was one of the founding editors of them, the, the queer platform run by Condé Nast. Um, and in particular, she talks about what does it mean to be basically a professional trans person. And I think that that might be something particularly of interest to our listeners, for instance. Um, and I, for instance, interview my friend uh, Kieran Sunar, who talks about navigating queer of color community and their work um, on Punjabi diaspora, for instance. But yeah, we do interesting, we interview scientists, we interview social scientists, people in the humanities with history, astrophysics, a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Great. Uh, where can people listen to it? Uh, you, so you could find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. But you, uh, you could find us on Twitter at, at PhDVizPodcast. Uh, you could find, uh, we keep our Facebook page very active. Um, I post several times a day there. <laughs> uh, so that might also be of interest. Um, I'm not as good on the Twitter thing. And so Liz, Liz takes that up sometimes. But yeah, it'd be lovely to have you join join our listenership and maybe even the conversation. Great. So at least one of them has to be quote unquote straight, and then the other ones can be right. Know, if you can't make it all the way through, that's fine. Uh, but I'll do do a little intro. Um, okay, so now Sarah is going to read from several, from three lesbian detective novels that I found in the library of London Friend, where there are two whole shelves of lesbian detective novels, and I picked them purely based on intrigue. So we have um, Fallen from Grace by Pat Welch. Uh, it's a Helen Black mystery. And I chose it because it has a naked person on the front. Um, the Wombat Strategy, a Kylie Kendall mystery by Claire McNabb. And then my favorite, Death by Death, also by Claire McNabb. Um, now, I want to stress that we are not mocking this genre at all. Like, I am fully in love with and 100% support the lesbian detective novel genre. If we laugh, we laugh from love. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I think that sums up what I'm about to say in the next sentence. Okay, so are you ready to read? Which one are you going to read first? Uh, I'm going to read from Death by Death by Claire McNabb. Brilliant. Her face lit with enthusiasm. Dr. Estelle Decker said, Ah. Josetta Wilson, very interesting. This is not your typical suicide bomber. <laughs> she didn't freely volunteer. She was manipulated. With drugs, I asked. Possibly. But there are other strategies. I'm going to show you how to brainwash... <laughs> oh, it's incredible. It's the best thing I've ever read in my life. Um, possibly. But there are other strategies. I'm going to show you how to brainwash susceptible subjects. What makes them particularly susceptible? Good question, said Estelle, with an approving nod. Susceptible people are followers, joiners. They seek the answers outside themselves. 
they long to belong to something greater than they are, where they'll find meaning and direction for their lives. They are waiting to be molded, changed. So, a strong self-image and a feeling you are master of your own fate inoculates you against brainwashing, I asked. Estelle shook her head. Not necessarily. Even people actively resisting can succumb, given the right circumstances. Even me? She gave me a wolfish grin. Even you. <laughs> amazing. I, want to read. I, I absolutely want to read this book. Yeah, that is amazing. <coughs> that, that's just the, uh, that's not even the prologue. That's like the pro-prologue. It's before the title even. I feel like I should have given the two characters different voices. It is all unfolding, like a waking dream, like fate. Everything is as it should be, as has been foretold. She tingles with anticipation. She is blessed. She is the chosen one. Correctly moving through the singing slices of time in their exquisite order. The crowds part before her, as has been prefigured. People are laughing and talking, eating and drinking, unknowing celebrants at a consummation soon to be made complete and perfect. Her spirit leaves her body to watch her physical self walking the black line, invisible to others, that she must tread. What? Have I read that with the wrong intonation? Her spirit leaves her body to watch her physical self walking the black line, invisible to others, that she must tread. There's some weird commas in that sentence. Her loose clothing flows gracefully as she paces the four ordained steps. Her long brown hair is lustrous in the glare of the lights in the television crew has set up. Whoa, there's so many twists in this first couple of paragraphs. She sees herself smile as Senator Jonathan O'Neven enters, confidently striding along his own predestined path. He doesn't look down, but surely he can see stretching ahead of him the thick black line that intersects hers on the raised... <coughs> Fucking hell. I'm the worst voiceover artist <laughs> of all time. Ah. Start from that sentence again. He doesn't look down, but surely he can see stretching ahead of him the thick black line that intersects with hers on the raised platform at the exact point where a speaker's desk sprouting a forest of microphones has been set up. Around her, people cheer and clap. Some call out his name. She joins their acclamation. It is right and proper to do so. The moment is at hand. My friends, he says, throwing wide his arms. The room becomes quiet. Relief suffuses her. She hasn't failed the task. She is sanctified, set apart, ordained, putting her hand through a slit cut in her clothing. She hooks her forefinger through the waiting metal loop. She mounts the two steps to the platform. Someone moves to stop her, but she evades him. Senator O'Neven is staring at her, surprised. She flings her arm around his neck. I am come to you, she says. Her finger tightens. The ritual is complete. You can hear two more extracts read by Sarah Jones in the next bonus episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Coming Out Tapes. I have been your host, Keris Bradley, and I would like to say thanks to Scary Boots for the artwork, 
which is available to purchase on Redbubble, Michaela Moody for the music, and Alex Lathbridge of the Smart Material Collective for his support of the project. If you want to get involved, please tweet at us, because we'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and questions. If you liked this episode, subscribe and leave us a review or recommend us to a friend, because it makes a big difference. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.